Hi, Ben. Zach Danke here from Phoenix, Arizona. Hi, Ben. This is Michelle from Germany. Hi, Ben. Stacy here from the great state of Pennsylvania. Hi, Ben. I'm Andrew from Cape Town, South Africa. Hey, Ben. It's Dave Munoz from Tucson, Arizona. Hey, Ben. It's Milos from Madrid in Spain. Hi, Ben. My name's Dan. I'm from the UK. Hey, Ben. This is John from Cary, North Carolina. Hey, it's Ben Wise, and this is The Fitness Movement. to you by Zor Fitness. Zor Fitness is my company and my platform to deliver training-related content to people just like you. The site features in-depth articles, movement breakdowns, and our online training program, The Protocol. And I offer one-on-one remote coaching for fitness athletes. So I hope you check it out. Head over to ZorFitness.com. That's Z-O-A-R Fitness.com. See you there. And welcome back. In today's episode, we are going to have the season two finale. This is our listener Q&A. So thank you to all the people who submitted questions. You heard all of them from really all over the globe in the intro here. And my intent is to answer these questions concisely yet thoroughly where I'm addressing this person as an individual, but also this is going to be transferable to everyone who's listening. And I do think this is a super practical episode for all of our listeners. These are common questions that I hear a lot in several different forms. So for those of you listening, I'm sure you've dealt with something similar. My goal is to have this apply to you and your fitness journey. So without further ado, let's hear the first question. Hi, Ben. Zach Danke here from Phoenix, Arizona. My question would be, as a coach myself, I find value in doing my gym's programming. I've tried in the past to do my own thing and really felt in doing so it disconnected me from the community I'm trying to help and coach. However, I don't have a coach myself and often no training partners. Is there any room or value in adding someone like yourself, even as a mentor role? Thank you. Thanks, Zach. So firstly, I'd probably ask, why do you do your gym's programming? And that is a legitimate, not rhetorical question. So I think a lot of people, I'm not going to put words in Zach's mouth, but a lot of coaches that I know or gym owners do their gym's programming because They want to demonstrate to the members and the other athletes that they believe in their gym's programming, so they do it, right? And they also want to have that touch point to be able to know what the workouts feel like, to what they experience, et cetera. So I would imagine that's what a lot of people in this situation would say, and that's a good reason to do that. So it's my belief that people in this type of situation can benefit a lot from still having a coach, still having a mentor of some kind, still having training partners that they can rely on. So in other words, you don't have to scrap and go away from your gym's programming, but you also don't have to do all the sessions that you do with your gym's programming. So I would imagine that none of the members, none of the coaches would balk if you jumped into class a couple times a week and then other sessions outside of that, you did some accessory work or some aerobic work or did some individualized sessions that a coach that you were working with, maybe part-time, or you and two other training partners got together and did some additional programming outside of that. So that'd be sort of the first angle that I would attack. I think it's good that you're doing your gym's programming. I think that demonstrates, like I said, to the members that you believe in it. However, do you need to be doing that all the time is a question that I would ask. 
And if the answer to that is I don't need to be doing every single session that I work out with my gym's programming, then that gives you some other freedoms that actually allow for growth. So it, it allows you to experiment with other modalities that maybe you wouldn't do in a class setting. It allows you to expand the time domain that you'd be doing. It allows you to practice maybe some movements in greater frequency or fewer frequency than you're going to see in a class setting. So it really allows for you to explore and experiment a lot more with your own fitness by doing that. And that's probably only going to benefit your community by doing that. And that could be with or without a formal coach that you've actually hired. So the second thing you mentioned was mentorship. Having a mentor is nothing more than having a person that you can go to and bounce some ideas off of and learn some things from. And for a long time, I really got hung up on the idea that I needed a mentor who was a one-stop shop for every single solution that I needed in my life. (laughs) And that is not realistic for anyone out there. So likely there's people at your gym or in your contacts right now that you know that you could go to that would have some benefit for you in at least one aspect of their life. So likely they could be a mentor for one aspect of your personal self or your athletic self or your professional self. So maybe it's a business person who goes to your gym and they're able to help you with financials and be a mentor in that particular role. Maybe you have someone in your gym who's an ex-triathlete and you can pick their mind about running or endurance training. And it could also be more of a peer-to-peer relationship. So personally, I meet with another coach who I interviewed on the podcast earlier this season. We meet once per month and we just chat about different things coaching. It helps us both grow our businesses and our toolbox as coaches so that we can show up better in those circles of our lives. And we're sort of at similar places in our career and our life journey. And that's really helpful for both of us to be able to bounce ideas back and forth off each other. And personally, it's brought about a lot of growth for me and it's been very helpful. So that is an option to have sort of a ongoing dialogue, more of a formal conversation between you and someone who you respect in one area, peer to peer. And lastly, you mentioned paid mentorships. And I do think that paid mentorships can be extremely valuable. The reason being... It's not just because these people are often more considered to be, quote, experts in their field, but also because as soon as you pay someone, you take money out of your pocket and you give it to them, so to speak, you're way more likely to listen to the advice and take action on the advice that they give you. So for example, say I've listened to 16 different podcasts and they've all talked about the benefits of aerobic work for the sport of fitness and how that can help your development as an athlete. If I get that same advice from a person that I respect a lot that I've paid to be able to give me advice on that particular moment, as soon as they say, hey, have you dedicated some time and some easy aerobic work? All of a sudden, I am way more likely to take that advice because it's number one, someone I respect in the space. And number two, I'm paying for that advice. So I'm way more likely to take action on that advice. Hi, Ben. This is Michelle from Germany. And I have some questions about stretching. I read a lot of times that stretching has to be a big part of your workout routine. And I want to know when is the best time to stretch and how many times a week should I stretch? Does it make sense to stretch every time after workout? And how long should the stretch be to be most effective? Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. So first of all, I'm going to say that I'm going to answer this specifically about stretching. And in my mind, when I think about like mobility training, that encompasses a lot more and a number of different techniques. And stretching is just one of those techniques. So first thing you ask is, should it be a part of your routine? Truthfully, I think this depends on where you lie on a spectrum from being tight versus lax. 
unlike strength training, aerobic training, I really do not believe that everyone needs to stretch. So if we think about resting muscle tension, if you're just relaxed, not actually contracting a muscle, how much tension you have in that muscle, that lies on a continuum. Now, this could be different for different muscle groups and maybe around certain joints or, I mean, more accurately, probably along certain fascial lines. But typically, people have a pretty general sense of how, like, quote, bendy they are. Like, if you're a more lax, hypermobile athlete, stretching is probably actually not going to be your friend. Right now, I have two athletes that I would coach that I would kind of place into this hypermobile demographic where I give them zero stretching. It's certainly less common. Like, I'm not doing this regularly for people. But for those people, it's really not helpful and doesn't help them solve any of the problems by stretching more. So for that hypermobile athlete, their muscles and supportive soft tissue have to work so much harder because basically they don't have the bony structures or the ligament tension to really be able to hold a joint in place really well so that their actual muscular control has to be so much greater just to keep their joints centrated. So if you think about your GH joint, which is your glenohumeral joint, it's like your, what most people think of as your shoulder, that's a ball and socket joint. People often say that it looks like a golf ball sitting on a tee, and that's not a very big surface. So to be able to keep that golf ball sitting on the tee correctly as you're doing all these functional movements, your rotator cuff and some of the other supporting musculature has to work so much harder just to be able to keep that joint in place and not let it pop out of joint, um, which happens sometimes for people. So it's really important for those athletes that they are doing a lot more to create stability and active control because they don't have near as much of the passive tension that they need to be able to keep that joint centrated. So for them, stretching is actually not something that I would recommend. In fact, we're going to do the opposite way. We're doing much more to create tension and create stiffness and to be able to drive more strength and endurance qualities into those tissues so that when they go to do chest bar pull-ups under fatigue, that their rotator cuff and their other supporting tissues are strong enough and resilient enough where they can keep that joint in place and that they're not having a lot of irritation because that joint's basically getting pulled all over the place as they move through space as they get tired. So obviously that's not super common, but for sure I have listeners right now who are hearing this who fall into that demographic. And for those listeners, it's going to be helpful to know that they don't need to be doing what everybody else is doing from a stretching mobility standpoint to be able to have their best performance. And often it's actually going to be the opposite, where if you are constantly detensioning yourself with stretching, you're only going to make your life harder and you'll be working even harder just to be able to keep that tension. So again, the further you're down the spectrum towards having stiff or short muscles, which aren't the same thing, but the further you're down that spectrum, the more time you want to spend stretching. So I want to go through two different scenarios about how you can spend some of your time stretching. The first one's going to be in your warmups and the second one's going to be in your cooldowns. Just so you know, For the people who are more stiff and carry more tension naturally, I would definitely recommend doing a lot of your stretching, the volume or the time that you spent doing that outside of your actual stressful training sessions. So you don't have to be doing it in your warmups and your cooldowns. You can do it as its own thing. Like you can very easily wake up and first thing in the morning, do some stretching or over your lunch break or as a break from your cognitive demanding work or Uh, right before you go to bed or as you're watching TV before you go to bed. Like there's all these different options that you have. You don't have to do it in your session. And this is great for two reasons because number one, it saves you time when you're actually at the gym. 
And number two, it doesn't mess with where you want your tension, which is going to be ideal for certain workouts when you're actually in the gym. So if you're doing thrusters and pull-ups, you need a certain amount of tension to be able to do that work correctly. And if you're doing too much stretching actually around that time, that's going to be an issue and you're not going to be able to perform correctly. And this is really important when we talk about things that have a high mobility component that are also strength-based. So something like a snatch or a clean and jerk is going to be hugely important that you can create a lot of tension and drive a lot of strength. But obviously, you also need a lot of mobility and range to be able to do that. So the big thing there is driving long-term change by doing a lot of your mobility work outside of the session. And then there's doing the minimal amount that you need um, to get ready and prepare yourself and get those positions prepped when you're actually in your session. So as a general rule of thumb, I would say in warm-ups, do active mobility. And active mobility to me means that you are using the range of motion that you need and claiming the range of motion that you need, but you aren't necessarily holding a long stretch. So you're not statically holding a position like people refer to as static stretching, just holding position for 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, five minutes. Yeah, I would say don't be doing that before you actually go and try to lift heavy or do a a high tension workout. Um, That's not something that you want to be doing. Rather, you can think about moving through the positions that you need. And it's fine if you hold stretches as long as they're on the shorter end of things. So if they're, you know, 20, 30 seconds tops, and then you kind of move on to another piece, that's perfectly fine. And even if you hit a few rounds of that, as long as you're pairing that with other things that kind of get your nervous system excited and ready to go, that's going to be perfectly fine. So by holding those stretches, 20, 30 seconds tops, that avoids a lot of the decreases in power output that have been shown uh, with that traditional longer hold static stretching prior to, again, any sort of heavy lifting or plyometric type activities. The other thing that the research shows could stave off some of those drops in uh, maximal power output is adding a strong contraction on top of the stretch while you're doing that stretch. So what I mean by this is, you know, if I'm hitting something like a, a banded lat stretch where my elbow is sort of by my ear, my hands going back behind my body, um, I'm stretching my lat and along I have my triceps and that sort of complex of my shoulder, I have two options, pales and rails. So you're either actively opening or actively closing a joint. I wrote an article on pales and rails. I'm not going to give the full acronyms. If you're interested, check out the show notes sorefitness.com slash podcast slash 041 to see the link. Basically, what you need to know is that in pails, the working muscle is being placed on stretch. In rails, it's the opposite. The working muscle is actively closing the joint. Sounds confusing. It'll be really simple once I give you a couple examples. So again, this is things that you're doing in your warmups to add a layer of contraction on top. So let's talk about pails first. So this is going to be things like pause squats. So you get a bar and you sit to the bottom of your squat and you hang out there. And the muscle that is being worked, so if you think about what works in a squat, like quads, glutes, adductors, all that musculature, is also being placed on stretch. Similarly, we could do something like, you know, the bottom of a dip hold. So you pretend like you're turning over a ring muscle up, you're holding in the bottom of that dip position, where again, the musculature that is being worked is also being stretched. So things like your pecs, your shoulders, your triceps, all that musculature. We could do things like, you know, deficit deadlifts or uh, bottom half only RDLs or good mornings with maybe a pause added in all that stuff. Again, what's being worked is being stretched, hamstrings, glutes, erectors. We can think of all that musculature. We could do things like hanging from a pull-up bar or doing scat pull-ups again, Lats, teres, rhomboids, lower trap, all of those musculatures are getting stretched. 
So that's pales, the working muscles being placed on stretch. If we go the opposite way, this is rails. So this is the regressive version of that. So the working muscles actively closing that joint. So things like L-sits, tuck holds, L-sit raises, the musculature that's being worked is your abs, your hip flexors, your quads, but the muscles that's being stretched are on the opposite sides of those joints. So it'd be like your posterior chain, like hamstrings, glutes, low back. If we're warming up for something like chest bar pull-ups, we could be doing a pausing bent row to your chest with a barbell or a ring row hold at your chest or a PVC hold on your chest and driving tension. So again, in rails, you can basically think of you're actively pulling yourself deeper into the stretch. So if you're doing a elevated cat pose where you got your hands over your head, you're trying to stretch out your T-spine and your, your shoulder flexion overhead position, you can think about really driving yourself down into the hole, thinking about opening up your shoulders, thinking about retracting your shoulder blades, thinking about squeezing your abs. You're trying to get yourself deeper into that stretch. And the fact that you're driving tension and really owning that range is the reason why you maintain a lot of your power output. Okay, so to sum it up, prior to the workout, you want to think about holding your stretches less. So 30 seconds or less, I would say, is a good rule of thumb. You want to drive tension during that stretch. It could be either opening the joint deeper or kind of pushing yourself out of the stretch, but without letting yourself actually move. And then combining that with obviously doing the movement that you need to do. So doing snatches if you're going to snatch, doing front squats if you need to front squat. And then also you could probably add some sort of plyometric activity, sort of counter that a little bit more like a depth jump or a hip transfer box jump or an ice skater jump, you name it. Anything like that would be perfectly fine. So let's move to after the workout. After a workout, if you just think about like, what's the goal here, the goal is to transition you from going hundred miles per hour in your Metcon or in your strength work to getting yourself to be slowly calmed down to the point where you're sort of normal, right? Like you're going back to a resting state. You don't want to get off the freeway where you're going hundred miles an hour, so to speak, and jam on the brakes and come skidding to a stop, right? And that's basically what people do when they walk out of the Metcon that they did in class and get into their car and go home for the night. That's exactly what they're doing to their physiology. That's not what you want to do. You want to be able to take your off ramp and slowly come to like a coasting stop. That is the goal. So you want to do things that are encouraging your body to relax. And one of the ways that we can encourage your body to relax is by doing longer hold stretching. We can do relaxing breath work and easy aerobic cool downs, things that are helping you to relax. So again, here, it makes more sense that we're holding stretches 30 seconds, two minutes or more right? Anywhere in that range. Basically, you can think about it as you want to hold a stretch long enough where you can see some change. And if you feel like holding it long enough where you eventually will stop seeing progress, that's where you want to stop, right? Which again, that's very broad. That could be anywhere from, you know, 20, 30 seconds to 10 minutes plus. And it really depends on what type of stretch. If it's pretty uncomfortable versus more of a mild stretch, like all these things are going to play into um, what's going to facilitate a good stretch and a good cool down protocol for you. And after a workout, I think it is really helpful to sort of follow this protocol that I outlined in episode 18. That was designing a mobility program that works. So if you're looking to get more in depth on this, go back and listen to number 18. But what I outlined there is basically you want to think about first doing something that allows you to get into a new position. So let's say that my quads are a problem area for me. A lot of people are going to be like, okay, I know how to stretch my quads. I'm going to do a couch stretch, which is great. Couch stretch will stretch your quads. However, most people stop there. Like they do the couch stretch and then they're done. 
my advice after you hit a stretch like that would be to get into a position that you actually want to improve. So the goal of the couch stretch is not to get better at the couch stretch. It's to use the couch stretch to allow you to maybe get better at something like a squat. So why would you not get into a squat after you did your couch stretch? Again, you have to give your body a reason to actually keep this new range that you just opened up. And to be able to get more musculature involved and actually hold a position and drive a little bit of tension in that position is only going to help you retain that range of motion a little bit better. So again, really simple. I'm working on my quads. I hit a stretch for my quads, and then I go into a position that demands mobility in my quads. So it could be two-minute couch stretch into uh, three front squats, each with a five-second pause at the bottom at 95 pounds, something light. It's not super challenging, but it demands something of my mobility and it does require a little bit of tension to be able to do that. So again, if you want more of those types of protocols, go listen to episode number 18. Besides that, I would say if you're someone who's just like, I need to get more mobile. Um, and that's like, you're thinking that's just too basic of a way to think about it. That's like someone saying like, I need to get stronger. So I'm going to do these 10 different exercises to get stronger. Like you need to be a little bit less elementary in the way that you're thinking about how to improve that thing. So if you want to get stronger, what specific patterns or positions do you need to improve? It's the same thing for mobility. So for the athletes that I work with, I'm not just prescribing them random mobility, like "Mm, let's do some of this today or some of that today. It's like I go through a movement screen with them, identify the specific ranges and patterns that they need work. And then we do things specifically for that improvement. Like that would be the equivalent of a coach working with you. You deadlift 500 pounds and you overhead squat 115 pounds and they're giving you deadlifts all the time in your training. Like your coach would never do that. Like, like that would just never happen. So why does that happen in mobility training? You need to get specific with what you actually want to improve. And it doesn't have to be super complicated. Like for me, it's, I need to work on shoulder extension. I'm working on T-spine extension. I'm working on hip flexion and knee flexion all the time. So it's pretty simple. Like I'm just going through maybe some tabletop bridges bicep stretches, T-spine openers, PVC dislocates. And that's sort of my upper body um, staples right there. And then for like my lower body, I'm doing things like lizard stretches, couch stretches, um, says the sits or like kind of saddle pose type work, right? And that's my lower body work. And it doesn't have to be overcomplicated and it allows me to get a little bit more targeted with what I actually need. And that's sort of the last part of the question that you asked was basically like, how long do I need to be doing this for? My recommendation would just be to start with a minimum effective dose which is just a fancy way of saying like do as little as you need to with still seeing some improvements. So again, I would say this is going to depend on who you are and what your lifestyle looks like. So for example, if you sit in front of a computer writing program designs all day and then you go to snatch, um, not that I know anybody that does that, but I'm going to need a little bit of time to be able to actually get into a decent position. So truthfully, it's individualized just like any other aspect of training. So I would say start with those principles, see what works and go from there. Hi, Ben. Stacy here from the great state of Pennsylvania. My question is for the competitive athlete. Episode 28, you uh, covered mental toughness, which was a really great one. My question is, what is your advice or direction for someone who trains alone for the most part in that they're the only one in the room doing a particular Metcon, no classroom setting, no one to really chase for a score. How do you push past the mental discomfort and just sort of go all out when it's you against you uh, almost every day? 
how does someone work out alone and still keep that competitive mindset day in and day out? Looking forward to hearing your answer. Thanks, Stacey. I think this is a really important question, and it's something that I think almost everyone at this point coming out of the pandemic has experienced um, this training alone. I say, first of all, it's hard. And I think it's very helpful sometimes just to have someone acknowledge that, yeah, you know what? This sucks sometimes, and it, it is what it is, and you're going to have to make the most of it. But at the same time, it's hard. And just knowing that, I think, is an important place to put yourself mentally, understanding that sometimes training alone can be challenging, more challenging than if you're training with a group. So that's that. Let's move on then. <laughs> Leave that there. We'll move on. Is there something that we can do so that you are not training alone for important pieces? Notice I'm saying for important pieces. There's going to be times where you just have to train alone and it's boring and it is what it is and that's just life. However, there's other times where if there's anything that we can do to get you to work out with someone else, that's going to be super helpful. If we have someone and they're super committed to the sport and they want to be a professional and they want to perform at a really high level, move somewhere move to Tennessee, move to Iceland, move somewhere where there is a hub of elite CrossFit athletes and find a way to insert yourself into there as frequently as you can. And you are much more likely to rise up with the tide, so to speak. So that's one option. Most people don't have that option. If I'm being honest though, like most people aren't willing to uproot their lives. They have families that got stuff going on that doesn't allow them just to pick up and move like that. And that's, that's most people if I'm being realistic. So then our second option is to find a way to train with a person who in one aspect or in a certain workout can push you or keep pace with you in that particular style of workout. And then maybe you can do that one to two times per week. So maybe you can do your weightlifting with a person who is a weightlifter at your gym. Maybe even if it's not the exact same workouts, like even if your programming is different than their programming, it allows you to work out alongside someone who has the intention of eliciting their best performance in a weightlifting style session. And that camaraderie will help you out immensely. Even if it's just a person who can push you in rowing workouts or can push you in longer endurance type workouts, those things are super helpful. And if you can find people who will, hey, I'm doing a Metcon this weekend, are you okay jumping in with me? Even if they're way ahead or way behind you, just having someone else there who's doing the same workout as you will help push you to elicit your best performance. So I think most people could get someone in there for at least a session or two per week, even if it's still the majority of time you're training alone. So let's say you take advantage of that and you're working out some of the time with a partner of some kind in some capacity. That still means that the majority of time you're training alone. And this is the case for high level athletes. Like they still have to train alone most of the time, or at least some of the time to get their individual priorities done. And that's just the way it is. Right? And it doesn't mean that it makes it any easier or any more fun, but it's a necessary thing if you want to be good. For these athletes and for people who train alone in this sense, the biggest thing that allows you to push is having a stronger connection to your why. So I have an analogy and I want to paint a scenario for you just to kind of explain this a little bit more. So imagine you are at a start line for a 5K run time trial and someone walks up to you and is like, hey, I will give you this 20 bucks if you can run your fastest 5K that you've ever run. You're like, great, let's do it. So you take off, you're running at your time trial pace, you're doing great. 3K in is starting to hurt so bad, but you're like, "Mm, you know what? That's 20 bucks. I'm going to keep running super hard. And you get to the 4K mark and you're like, oh, I just can't hold on anymore. And you kind of, you know, let your pace fade a little bit. 
Because at the end of the day, that's 20 bucks. Like how hard do you really have to work to get 20 bucks? Like it doesn't mean that much to you. Like you don't have that strong of a why to actually will your way to be able to hurt that bad to make that happen. Versus you walk up to the start line of the 5K and you see a grizzled man. He's kind of coming around the corner. He puts out a cigarette. He's walking up to you and says, listen, I've kidnapped your significant other. And unless you run the fastest 5K they've ever run in your life, I'm going to kill them. Imagine how you're going to run that 5K race. Now, I realize that's a completely outlandish, ridiculous scenario, but it paints a picture of what it means to have a super strong why. Like if you want to be able to hurt on a daily basis to the level that you need to, to be able to compete at a high level in CrossFit, you have to understand why you're hurting like that on a daily basis. The more strongly you are committed to your goal and all of the decisions that you have to make outside of that session, like I've given up my free time. I've given up my other hobbies. I've spent time away from family so that I can train for this thing. I am not going to just sandbag this workout. Like I'm going to give it everything I have in this moment. And that's what I mean when I'm saying you need a stronger connection to your why. And it's okay if you're an athlete who isn't willing to give up certain aspects of your life in order to have a stronger connection to that why so that you are more committed to that goal. But realize that if you want to push yourself and if you want to get to the highest level that you can and be the very pinnacle of the sport, you recommitting to that goal every single day with all the small decisions that you make outside of that session are going to allow you to push yourself so much harder in that session because it's going to mean so much more to you. And even when it hurts, you're not going to give up because you know exactly why you're doing it. Okay, so I'm going to end my rant there. The last thing I do want to say about this is that I think accountability from a coach can be super helpful as well. Having someone in your corner who is believing in you that is expecting your best performance and willing to have tough conversations in order to get to your best performance is super helpful. So knowing, just knowing that you have someone who you are going to be submitting times to, scores to, that you're having video submissions to is often enough that you push just a little bit more in training. Hi Ben, I'm Andrew from Cape Town, South Africa. I've noticed you speak about not overdoing movement patterns and such in a program to prevent overuse. Now, my problem is that we are back in lockdown here and I don't have access to machines such as the rower or the assault bike and replacing all those machines with running in the past has really taken a toll on my knees and back. So how would you recommend replacing those machines in workouts so that I can keep improving cardiovascularly, looking at especially longer workouts such as 30, 40, 50 minutes workouts? Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Andrew. So firstly, I think this is helpful for people who are in lockdown, obviously, but also someone's just like traveling if they're doing hotel workouts where they don't have access to like their typical equipment, they might have Um, a few dumbbells or possibly a a jump rope or some very minimal equipment or a person who just wants to add a second sweat type session at home where they don't have to go to the gym or kind of get done up to be able to do that. And then they have minimal equipment at their house. Yeah. So certainly if you just try to replace all the volume that you were doing in the gym with running and bodyweight movements, like as you alluded to, you're probably going to get cranky knees back. Yeah. It's just going to happen. So for a person who's in a lockdown type situation or traveling where they have minimal equipment, there's a few focal points that I think would be helpful. So the first thing is just to pick some new targets or interim goals that you can work towards during this time when you don't have a lot of equipment. 
So for example, rather than trying to do things that are going to improve your snatch, if that's one of your goals inside of the gym, just set that to the side for now. Not that we have to go away from that entirely, but pick something new so that you stay motivated and actually want to be training on a daily basis. So for example, maybe it's, I've always been struggling with double unders. So I'm going to try to really improve my double unders and my max unbroken set of double unders over the next X amount of time that I'm in lockdown or over this two weeks that I'm on vacation. I don't have much equipment. You know, maybe it's, I'm going to go out to my yard and I'm going to practice handstand walking for 15 minutes every day. Uh, maybe it's, I want to, you know, do my 5k time trial for my run and really focus on building that out in a smart and intelligent way over the next six weeks. Maybe it's, you know, something really gross, like a hundred burpees for time. Like you just got to pick something and go for it. Um, so that's the first thing I would say, like, yeah, just set new targets for yourself. Secondly would be to vary your movement selection. So likely if you just go and like Google, like at home workouts, it's going to be like a lot of the same stuff, especially if you're like looking up like CrossFit wads that you could do at home. It's going to be like running and burpees and pushups and air squats and handstand pushups against the wall, like all of that sort of basic stuff. And if you do that at any sort of frequency, you're probably going to have some overuse injuries fairly quickly uh, arise because of that. So you have to find ways that you can vary those movement patterns more than that, because again, that's all hitting the same thing. Like if you're just running and doing air squats and like really quickly, like your knees are going to beat up by doing that. Or if you're constantly doing all these burpees or handstand pushups, like likely you're going to have the same overuse patterns that are going to be uh, appearing because of that. So yeah, it's just like you mentioned. So for example, if we think about how we could take a single movement and start to vary that up a little bit, right? It's going to obviously provide a different stimulus, but it's also going to harness those joints in a different way and the musculature in a different way where it allows you to have resilience for a longer period of time. So if we take something like an air squat, we could expand this out into maybe a dozen different variations or more where it's, you could do stationary lateral lunges, you could do pistols, you could do kickstand squats or step-ups or deck squats, uh, sissy squats, Kang squats with your body weight or figure out like a jug that you could hold. Um, you could vary your stance with, you know, there's, we could go on and on with this. And I think if you just do that and try to vary it a little bit more, your joints are going to be much happier with you. Um, and it was just going to require you to get a little bit creative, maybe do some homework on the internet and actually find different variations that are going to work for you. And then also that just prevents you from getting so bored by training on your own. Like if you're training during quarantine or when you're traveling, it's very often that you're only with one or two other people or completely by yourself. And just giving a, l- a little bit more variance is certainly helpful in maintaining your sanity during that time. And then a subcomponent of varying movement selection could be adding isometrics. So isometrics are great because you can do a lot of them and hold them for a long period of time and start to build volume without beating your joints up. So if you hold a plank for, you know, 20 minutes accumulative over the course of a week period um, and a couple different training sessions, you're probably not going to be sore from that versus if you did 20 minutes of crunches, you could be super beat up. So just the nature of an isometric contraction, you're much less likely to get joint irritation or DOMS like delayed onset muscle soreness from doing isometrics. So again, the common ones are probably like a plank, side plank, rear plank. However, you can also get really creative with it. Maybe you're holding a push-up at 90 degrees with your elbows. Maybe it's a wall squat. Maybe it's a reverse lunge where you're hovering your knee one inch off the ground in the back. Maybe it's kicking up and holding a handstand against the wall for two minutes. Again, if you get creative with it, I think there's a lot of options. The third one would be to walk or bike more. I think most people have access to obviously just the ability to be able to walk around, but also a lot of people just have like a bike, even if it's an old bike that's just laying around, not super nice. It's something where you can still get outside, 
and pretty easily accumulate quite a bit of volume without beating yourself up versus just trying to run and make up all that volume. So running obviously is a lot more pounding. There's a lot more ground reaction forces that are taking place during that. If you replace that with a walk, you're much less likely to have that joint irritation. And obviously biking, it's basically a non-eccentric environment, basically no impact there. So very easily you can start to accumulate 45, 60, 90 minutes of work two to three days a week. And obviously that's going to help you build a robust aerobic system, but it's also going to keep you feeling healthy. And honestly, you'll probably feel really good doing that because you'll be outside more. You'll get to see that, you know, have the sunlight and have all the the benefits um, of having light come into your eyes and onto your skin during the day. And again, that's another way that you can start to shift some of these priorities over the short term and saying like, okay, I'm going to try to accumulate three hours of walking or easy bike riding within my community or within the certain radius of my house on a weekly basis. And really, that's just going to allow you to continue to progress during whatever time that you have that minimal equipment available to you. Hey, Ben, it's Dave Munoz from Tucson, Arizona. So the question I had is focused more on uh, newer athletes. So obviously it takes a lot of time for an athlete to progress and get a lot of the movements down. But when is an athlete typically ready or what are indicators that they're ready to compete at any level, even a beginner scaled competition? When would you say is the green light for that? And what are indicators that they're ready to go from scaled workouts to RX workouts? And just for my own sake, typical timeline for someone who's been training. So usually how long would it take to go from scale to RX as well? All right. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Dave. So first of all, I would say if you're a competitive athlete or a quote competitor, it's both a noun and a verb. So unless you are competing at a competition, you are not a competitor. So that would be my super direct sort of blunt answer. But I think the reality, and this is sort of what you're getting at here, is you want to be prepared to compete. So you just don't want to compete willy-nilly and not be really prepared for it or feel like you're going to get embarrassed at the competition. There's a lot of those kind of things that you want to kind of check off before you actually get in your first comp. And I totally get where you're coming from here. That being said, you want competitive experiences right away. So my first piece of advice for people who want to compete and you have not competed yet, get into a competition. That could be a scale competition. That could be maybe the RX division if there's an elite field, right? Something where you can at least get some exposures and realize that when you sign up for that, there's a very high likelihood that there's going to be a weight that you can't lift. There's going to be a movement that you can't do yet. There's going to be a skill that you haven't acquired yet. And there's potential there for you to feel embarrassed or be embarrassed at that competition. And here's the thing, you have to be willing to put yourself into that situation and potentially experience that in order to have the growth that comes along with it. Competition is going to expose your weaknesses. And this is true for someone who's a beginner. It's also true for the people who are the highest of the elite. Anytime you go up against your capacity and you're testing yourself against other people who are trying to beat you, it's going to bring so much to the surface that wasn't visible before. So the first part of your question, when is the green light to compete? It is as soon as you are calling yourself a competitor, you want to sign up for a competition just to get exposure to being in a competitive scenario where you have to manage your headspace and you have to be in an environment that's not your training facility. And there's the nutrition aspect. There's so much that goes into the actual act of competing on a given date and having that on the calendar is a very important thing to have something to prepare for. But also knowing that it's going to expose you, knowing that you're not going to crush every element and being okay with that 
and allowing that to spur growth in your training. But I will say for people who are more beginners, you don't want to skew your training going into those first competitions super far where you're going through a long taper phase or a really intense competition prep phase in order to go into that competition. I would say treat that more as part of your training where you don't need a big buildup. You don't need to go through a whole phase of your training just to be able to prep for that. Continue to work through other progressions and work on the skills that you've been working on all of those things. And then you know, do a few things to brush up on the skills or if you know certain movements are likely to show up or if it's, you know, at the beach and you're likely to get an open water swim, all of those sorts of things you might start to prep for, but you don't need to skew your training to be able to peak at one of those competitions. That's not really the goal. The goal is to get exposure to competing. So it allows you to continue to progress in your training. And the second part of your question was a typical timeline for an athlete going from scale to RX in certain workouts. Um, First of all, um, I'll say that, you know, if you're one of my athletes, you are doing all of your workouts as prescribed. (laughs) So they're written to your current ability level, and that is the prescription, and that will help you improve over time. But again, I totally understand what you're saying, like RX and like maybe loading in certain benchmark workouts or to be able to, if you're in a class, be able to jump into a class RX workout. Answering that is much more complicated. I'd say it's going to depend on a number of factors. Number one is what is your movement literacy going into CrossFit? So if we have a person and they grew up doing gymnastics, they're a college athlete, they had exposure to strength conditioning growing up, they are way more likely to pick up high-level gymnastics and weightlifting movements and the positions that they need to get into and to be able to coordinate double unders and be able to understand the position, weight shifts, and handstand walks to be able to do those skills much quicker. I like using the comparison to language. If someone knows five different languages, it's not going to be a challenge for them to pick up a sixth language. They're going to understand how learning one particular language translates to another one and how possessives or plurals or proper nouns typically work. There's just all these different things that they understand at a different level versus a person who's bilingual versus a person who only speaks their native language. And that really transfers to this general idea of athleticism or the sense of being able to pick up new movements and to be able to acquire new skills quickly. But the skill component is just one side of that. What about strength and power? What about repeatability and endurance? Like there's all of these different categories of things that we have in our sport that someone's athletic or just movement past is going to lend itself to be useful or not useful to that. So in season one Q&A, I talked about how If someone was spending 10 hours or 12 hours on their feet every day because of their job, they're way more likely to be able to handle the volume that's needed to practice double unders three or four days a week without that being an issue and detracting from the rest of their training. So there's all these different characteristics or little rabbit holes that we could go down for an individual athlete, looking at how are you prepared or ill-prepared and all of these different qualities that are necessary to be good at the sport. That being said, there's really two things that hold people back from doing benchmark workouts as prescribed or jumping into class things. It's skills and it's strength, right? So it's about, can you produce the force that's required to be able to get under the heavy loads, even if it takes you all day, right? Like your fitness, your sustainability, your repeatability, your endurance might not be great, but can you do it, right? If you have the skill, even if it's not fatigue resistant and you have the strength, even if it's not with the aerobic qualities, you'll be able to complete RX workouts. And this is why for so many beginners in the sport, they need years of development, working on skills to make them smooth and efficient in all these different workout scenarios 
and also to be able to develop the absolute strength qualities that are needed in order to be successful in the sport. Hey Ben, it's Milos from Madrid in Spain. Uh, you mentioned in the episode 27 that having uh, strong legs and weak core is like shooting uh, a cannon from a canoe. I historically struggled with overhead squat and overhead walking lunge and single arm overhead squat. Is there a way that I will be able to determine if this is a limitation with my shoulder strength and stability versus my core strength? Thank you. Thanks, Milos. The first question I would ask is, do you feel shaky or unstable? Um, in other words, having difficulty maintaining a position, or do you feel like you are struggling to get into a quality position? So if you can't get into a quality position, it's likely a mobility issue. So again, mobility, range of motion, plus motor control. So you may be able to passively get in that position where if you were laying on your back on the floor, you could get your arm all the way up over your head. But that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to actively claim that when it's loaded. So once you're actually upright and have your arm up over your head for something like a dumbbell walking lunge, that doesn't mean that you're actually going to be able to claim and maintain that position effectively. So again, mobility is range of motion plus motor control. You have to have both. You have to have the passive range of motion, the freedom to be able to get into a position. You also have to have the motor control or strength to be able to maintain a good quality position once you actually get there. So simply for whatever movement that you feel like the issue is or movements that you feel like it is, video yourself and compare yourself versus a person who is highly proficient at that movement. So maybe video yourself, compare that against a games athlete doing a workout with that movement in it and be able to determine, does my position look like their position? If it doesn't look like your position, even when you're unfatigued or lightly loaded, then it's probably an issue with mobility and you need to be able to work on that position. So if that's you, I would go back and listen to episode number 18 that was on designing a mobility program that works. So mobility is not just stretching. Stretching allows you to open up a certain range, but then you need to do something that is a high neural component using actual strength and driving a lot of tension into the position to give your body a reason to have that new range of motion actually stick around so you can claim it in the future. The goal is to drive that long-term change. So let's say that's not the issue and it's more so like you are pretty easily able to get into position when you're unfatigued or lightly loaded. But then once you're in that position, the position begins to break down once you've held that position for longer or once you begin to breathe hard in that position, then it's much more likely to be a stability or midline issue. <laughs> and I think often people read into this are like, oh, it's a midline issue. So I should be doing GHD sit-ups and hollow holds all the time. And I would say like rarely is the answer that simple, where it's just like, oh yeah, I'm going to do some specific midline work and that's going to yield itself to a better performance. If someone does very little accessory work for their core, maybe that could help them. However, I find it much more useful to do the movement that you plan to do and is required of you to do. So do the dumbbell overhead walking lunge, focusing on keeping a tight midline, focusing on having good mechanics and not allowing yourself to have compensation patterns as you get tired. So maybe it's a 1K row at a ramping pace. You get off and immediately do a 50-foot overhead walking lunge, focusing on keeping a tight core and breathing through the position while maintaining nice, clean lines while you're doing that. So again, I'm going to refer out here. Episode number 27 was a model for functional core slash midline training. I would definitely go listen to that episode if you feel like you're someone who's in that demographic. I'll talk much more about how to integrate midline training and not just have some sort of isolated ab exercise, because that is not going to be the answer for that situation. Hi, Ben. My name's Dan. I'm from the UK. 
I just wanted to say I've been listening to your podcast for several months now and it's been really informative and helps my development as a Crawley athlete immensely. So thanks a lot. One of the concepts I've been reading into and I find really interesting is how breathing efficiently can enhance your performance in the sport of fitness. I'm guilty of hitting Metcons all out from the start and this often results in a spiked heart rate and breathing rate, which I find difficult to maintain. Have you got any tips on how to work on your breathing during a Metcon piece or any exercises that will help this aspect? Thanks, Dan. Uh, I really like this question. I would sort of think about maybe attacking this in three different ways. Um, we're talking about like the spiked heart rate, the breathing rate that is really common with Metcons. First would be environmental. So in other words, if the music's super loud where you're at, that's an issue, right? If everyone in your class, when they start the 20 minute AMRAP is like in a dead sprint on that first 400 meter run, that's an issue. If your coach is like screaming at you to go faster and this is like the first quarter of the Metcon, that's an issue. Like if you can change that, change it. Think about how you could potentially manipulate those things. So like, hey coach, we got double unders today. Um, I think it'd be really helpful if we could maybe just keep the volume on the radio a touch lower so that we could hear a rope spin. That's really helpful for us as we try to learn this skill. I think oftentimes if people go about it in that sort of way, you probably actually get what you want versus if you're like, this music's too loud or you just act like you're complaining about it. If you give some sort of a rationale behind why you don't want the music blaring or you know how you can manipulate some of these environmental factors, you're way more likely to actually get the outcome that you want. But that being said, if you're maybe in a scenario where the, the music is just way too loud, like there's still things that you can do to control this. Like you can wear earplugs. So I actually used to wear earplugs on certain days at my old box, just when I wanted to moderate my intensity a little bit and I didn't want my arousal to get too high. So things like that are an option if you're willing to do that. You might get a few weird looks, but hey, that's all part of it. And then secondly, I would say like if you can't actually change your external environment, think about how you can then change your internal environment. So what's going on inside of your own head and body. So you need to work to create some sort of separation from that environment, emotionally speaking, where maybe it's in your head, you're like, you know, it's the start of a workout and everybody goes out in a dead sprint and you're like, you fools, why are you starting out round one in a dead sprint? Just like, hey dude, just let them go. Like you just like say it in like that sort of tempo. You're like, relax, like they're going to pay for it in the latter rounds. Like just let them go. Right. And if you think about it in that way, you're not going to nearly get as much caught up into that and sort of make yourself having the reputation as someone who goes out just a touch slower in workouts and then is more of a pacer. So I think that just changing your own identity around how you attack workouts could actually be useful. And if you watch the best of the best, like Rich Froning did this a lot, like you'd see everyone at the games like take off round one and they sprint up to the bar and start ripping it off the ground and really like kind of going through reps really fast. Rich would just sort of stroll up to the bar and it's just like begin chipping away at reps. He never ever looked like rushed or chaotic. I'd actually say like calm is a much better word for how he would go about attacking workouts. But by the end of the workout, he was the one holding a faster pace than everyone else. And everybody else was kind of trailing off and their power was diminishing towards the end of it. And he was able to actually increase towards the end of um, the rounds. And I think it's helpful for people to remember this is CrossFit. And most of the time in CrossFit, the workouts are written in such a way that you don't actually need to get through the reps faster. You just need to rest less. So for a lot of people, if you watch a video of yourself doing a Metcon, like film yourself, watch it back. And just track the amount of work that you're doing relative to the amount of rest that you're doing. Unless it's a workout where there's a lot of cyclical components, like a rower or an air bike, you're probably going to see that a good chunk of the time of that workout, you're actually resting. So I think that's one thing to think about is just changing your internal dialogue about how you attack workouts. 
and in turn, slowly changing your identity about what kind of an athlete you are and how you attack workouts. I mean, I even think like having some sort of a mantra in a workout could be super helpful. I've done this before where I know it's like a long workout where it's like the open, I'm amped up, it's week one, and I want to go out too hard. And it's like a 10 round workout. I'll just like repeat to myself like some sort of a mantra like patience, like not yet, right? Like wait. Just like tell yourself to like hang on, don't go yet, right? And eventually, then okay, after round five, if I feel good, I can increase a little bit. At round seven, okay, if I feel good, now I can lay it all out there and really get after it. So like wait, 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 okay, attack, right? And that sort of kick at the end is what's going to allow you to actually get your best score versus having a a big tail off the performance towards the end. And then the third thing I would say is pacing. So first of all, I would say it's going to be sometimes just like certain workout scenarios, like how they're written, like CrossFit will write them, whoever's writing them will write them in a way where it's unavoidable for you to not get gassed in workout, basically. So my favorite example of this was the games workout assault banger. So it was a 40 for men, 30 for females calorie assault bike into one length, hitting a metal beam down a rail with a sledgehammer, essentially. And you have no choice in that workout. If you want to be competitive, especially if you're that level, you have to go like all out in the beginning and hold on as long as you can. And inevitably, like you're just going to be fading towards the end of that workout. But yet, if you want to be competitive, you have to go out super hard. You know, if the workout's something like the 500 meter row, 30 bar facing burpees for times, like we saw the masters athletes do the other year at the games, like if you want to win that workout, you can't sandbag the row. Like you have to go out hard and then try to hold on. However, I'll say most tests aren't designed that way where like you start out in a sprint and then you're reduced sort of to a crawl by the end. Like most of the time, the person who's most consistent with their round times and their split times is the person who's going to win or come out on top. So I think a really good goal for a lot of rounds or time workouts, or, you know, if it's an AMRAP or it's got multiple rounds or where you can get at least a few rounds deep into it, aim to have negative splits. So in other words, reducing your round times each round. So maybe it's 205, 202, 157, 154, 152, 149 across your five round workout or whatever that was, right? So that you're improving your times each round and you're getting faster and increasing your power output over each of those rounds versus having it be the mere opposite of that where you start off and it's 143, 147, 202, 222, and just all of a sudden it degrades and you're falling apart in the workout. The person who's more consistent across those rounds is going to end up on top. So I think a really good practice for this is being able to do a a rehearsal round or walkthrough round Uh, before you actually do the workout. So just doing a single round at a slow pace where you're transitioning slow and it feels like you're actually moving too slow relative to what you want to do. And then taking that time, starting there and then allowing yourself to build as you get deeper into the workout. So you're like, all right, I did my walk through my rehearsal round and it took me a minute and 50 seconds. I'm going to start aiming for two minutes my first round. And then each round, I'm going to try to pick it up a little bit quicker and now I'm at round, you know, seven out of seven, and I'm at a minute and 25 seconds, and it's now at a super high exertion level towards the end of that workout. But that's allowing you to elicit a much better performance out of yourself, and it's not going to spike your heart rate or your breathing, uh, like you mentioned. I'll also say that you can program workouts that require pacing and that are going to require negative splits as a result. So this is actually a workout that I did about two weeks ago. I remember it because it hurt really bad. <laughs> But it was every five minutes for six sets, it was a three-minute working window. So in other words, it was three minutes on, two minutes off for six total sets. 
15 thrusters at 95 pounds into 25 double dumbbell deadlift at 50 pounds per hand. And in the remaining time, it was max row calories. So overall, it was actually a pretty simple workout, but the big catch was I had to increase my row calories every round or I would terminate the workout. So if I didn't improve my row calories on each of those six rounds, I had to stop doing the workout. And the goal is obviously to do as much as you can of the workout. I realize some people probably go out super hard, so they could probably just end the workout right away, but that's not the goal of it. So my row calories respectively were 27, 30, 32, 33, 35, and 36. And I'll say my rating of perceived exertion on that was probably like six, seven, eight, nine, 10 out of 10. Like it was a hundred percent effort on that very last one. Like I was really digging. It was hard to do. But looking at my scores, everything's nice and linear, and you can see the power increase across all those sets. So I started off, I was like the mid-1,200 calories per hour. Then I was like low 13s, mid 13s, low 14s, upper 14s, and then 1,500 to 1,600 calories per hour the entire time on that last one. So that's certainly something you could play around with is having intervals that are structured where it's going to be challenging, but it's repeatable and you can improve upon your power output each interval that you come back. And it's going to require holding back a little bit at the beginning and it's going to require getting gritty at the end. So at this point, if you've done all these things where you're controlling your external environment, you're controlling your internal environment and self-talk and your pacing strategy, and you're actually you know, having negative split times on your workouts, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to have this huge spike in heart rate and breathing rate and feel like you're suffocating in like the beginning part of a workout. Again, unless it's one of those workouts where it's just required that you do that. But for the most part, that's probably not going to happen. If it is still happening, there's two additional things that I would probably recommend for you. Number one would be starting to add cyclical elements into your workouts. So it's totally possible that you doing toes to bar and bar facing burpees and box jump overs just isn't aerobic enough or sustainable enough for you not to have this big spike in your heart rate and breathing. Whereas an elite athlete could probably get away with that. So the solution for that, without just saying, oh, I need to get more fit, is adding a cyclical component. So adding something like a rower, an air bike, ski erg, some running, something where you can actually recover your heart rate, be able to recover your breathing a little bit, to be able to clear some of that fatigue, and to be able to hold a lower pace and have it not to be such a high output. So instead of just doing rounds for time of, toes to bar, burpee box jump overs, and dumbbell snatches, you start to add rowing or air bike in between those elements, or maybe in between rounds of that workout, if it's chunk small enough, where that allows you to be able to recover your breathing a little bit more, enough where you then can pick up your pace each round that you're going into. So that'd be the first thing would just be adding those cyclical elements into the workout. Second thing I would say is you can set a nasal cap is what I call it for yourself in the early rounds of a workout. So for example, if you're doing Murph, you're going to say 100%, I'm going to keep my mouth shut during that first mile run. Because the last thing that I want to do is go out too hot on that first run where now I'm sucking wind that entire 40, 50 or 60 minute event, right? You don't want that to happen. So rather than letting myself get caught up in everybody else who's running out too hot in the beginning of that workout, I'm going to make sure that if I can't breathe through my nose during this piece of the workout, I'm going too hard. So if it feels like I'm suffocating breathing through my nose, I have to slow myself down 
And I'm going to hold that nasal breathing until I get back into the gym and I'm doing my Cindy rounds of pull-ups, push-ups, and air squats. So it's a way to prevent yourself from going out too hard. It's a way of actually limiting your power output at the beginning of the workout so that you can increase and pace correctly towards the end of the workout. So I did a 10K trail run the other month and I do not run a lot right now. I used to do triathlons, but right now I do not do much running. Run volume is really low. So I knew that if I tried to go out and race the first part of that 10K, that I was really going to be paying for it in the latter parts of that event. So I basically said to myself, hey, the first 15 minutes of this event, I'm not going to allow myself to breathe through my mouth. Inevitably, everybody took off at the beginning of the race and they were kind of hammering it into the first 200 meters. And yeah, I kind of get caught up in that a little bit, but I kept my mouth shut. And I felt myself like kind of getting up towards my capacity. I was like, I feel like I'm suffocating a little bit here. I better just kind of ease this down. And I slowed myself down just a touch, continued with the nasal breathing, stayed under that nasal cap and allowed myself to, after the 15 minute mark, start to open up a little bit more. And then I was catching all these people in the second half of the workout who went out too hard and were struggling towards the end. And I'll also say like, I still had a really hard time at the end of that workout. I would say my pace probably still degraded a little bit from what it was at the beginning, just because it was a long event and I wasn't used to that. So again, if this is a long event and something with multiple rounds, these are all effective strategies that you can begin to implement and really take advantage of so that you're not blowing up your heart rate or your respiration rate early in workouts. Hey, Ben, this is John from Cary, North Carolina. You mentioned in episode number 38, the necessity to build volume for improvement in the sport. My question is about when to wear weight belts in regard to volume. Is there a good rule of thumb for number of reps and weight percentage when you read it off the board? Or if there's a lot of muscular interference in a workout and you know your form could suffer, like high reps of moderate back squats after other squat-centric movements? Thanks. Keep up the good work. Thanks, John. So the first thing that I would say is number 11 of the podcast, episode number 11, would be a great option to go to. I talked about gear and equipment. Is it helpful or is it a hindrance? So that's a good reference for you. But I mean, I really think we could have this conversation for wrist wraps, knee sleeves, lifting shoes, thumb tape, gymnastics grips. Um, so let's talk about this specifically to a weight belt to answer this question. You know, I've personally heard people talk about weightlifting belts where it's either like cyanide to them or like some sort of panacea where it's either going to, you know, be the worst thing that you could do for your back and your long-term health and core strength, or it's going to solve all your problems. And, you know, you won't get injured because of that. It's neither of those things, right? A weightlifting belt has a purpose. It can be very useful, but it also can pretty easily become a crutch. And I think as long as you view it in that way, where it's not going to solve all your problems and it's also not going to cause all of your problems, then you can start to be a little bit more mature in how you look at how you should actually be using a weightlifting belt. So when you're lifting heavy, you shouldn't feel like you have to use a weightlifting belt. Also, when you're below a certain percentage, you shouldn't feel obligated to have to not wear a lifting belt. It's really going to be dependent on you as an individual where you find use for the weightlifting belt and certain movement patterns, and also what sort of load or fatigue that you're under that allows you to get some sort of performance or safety out of the weightlifting belt. So one of the things I also think is going to be helpful is if we understand how a weightlifting belt gets used. I think a lot of people, not just beginners, don't know how to use a weightlifting belt effectively, and it really hamstrings their abilities to be able to actually lift heavy or be able to perform well on heavy types of Metcons. 
So when you put on a weightlifting belt, you want it to be tight enough where when you take a breath, you can actually create tension against that belt. You don't want it to be so tight where you can't take a three quarters or pretty decent breath against that belt without, you know, feeling like you have to breathe up into your chest because it's kind of limiting your ability to be able to expand. So there's definitely a sweet spot for how tight you put the belt. And mind you, that might actually differ a little bit, whether it's like a one rep max strength movement where you put it on, you do your single, and then you can take it off right away versus if you're doing, you know, 12 squat cleans at 85% in a workout and you're not going to loosen it in between those individual reps you might have it just a touch looser in those environments. But that's sort of into the weeds. If we just think about what the goal of that belt is, you want it just tight enough where you can push and create 360 degrees of tension out against that. So a helpful analogy for how a weightlifting belt actually works. If you were to just take a plastic water bottle, empty, and you were to squeeze it without the lid on, it would just crush really easily. Right? And that's what it's like if you're not actually holding your breath when you're lifting heavy. Yes, you can create some amount of pressure, but it's a whole lot harder versus if you just hold your breath and include your breathing for a period of time, um, like I talked about in episode number 17, that allows you to create a lot more intra-abdominal pressure. And if you think about, okay, now you put the lid on that water bottle and you squeeze the water bottle, all of a sudden the walls of the water bottle get really rigid and you can't, it's not as palpable anymore. Like it's much firmer to the touch. So that's what you're doing when you're putting on a weightlifting belt and you're basically squeezing the water bottle. You're not allowing any of your air to come out. You're pressing out against it. And that's what creates all this rigidity through your core. If we understand that, that begins to put in perspective how we should be using this in a workout. So first of all, if we're talking about something like Murph, right, that would obviously be a high squatting volume workout. However, the goal is not to create a ton of intra-abdominal pressure while you're doing air squats because you don't need to have that pressure. You only need to have high intra-abdominal pressure when you're doing high strength, high power movements. So if you're sprinting down the track at max effort, you're going to have altered breathing or you're not going to breathe at all if you're truly at max effort because you're having to stabilize your core so hard. If you go to jump as high as you possibly can, you're going to include your breathing for just a second as you go to do that. If you're trying to crush a baseball or maybe throw a wicked punch, you might have a slight exhale as you're doing that, but you're going to create intra-abdominal pressure, and that's what's going to allow for transmission of force through your core. So if we go back to that Murph example, you don't want to wear a weightlifting belt for something like Murph. That seems obvious, but you don't need it because the load is so low. So there's going to be a certain threshold where a belt becomes helpful in certain movements. So if I just take myself as an example... A lot of overhead movements, I don't really like wearing my belt for it. It's just a personal preference thing. But for the most part, unless I'm like split jerking up to a max, I'm probably not going to put a belt on. And a big reason for that is because I can keep an upright torso and I don't need to have as much trunk tension as I'm doing that. And I can kind of breathe a little bit easier in between reps. So if you're someone who's super efficient and you can clean or snatch and you have a perfect upright torso as you're moving through that, you might not need a belt almost regardless of what the loading is or the volume is in that particular workout. But for a lot of people who have subpar positions, myself included, like when I catch cleans and they're heavy, I start to round, right? It's really helpful for me to be able to create a lot of intra-abdominal pressure to be able to stay rigid and not allow myself to round as I come out of the bottom of a squat for something like a clean. So if I expand upon that example for myself, right? Cleans in a workout. Every time I see squat cleans in a workout, it doesn't mean that I throw on my weightlifting belt, even though that helps me sometimes. If I'm doing an open workout like 11.3, that was a five-minute AMRAP of squat cleaning and jerks at 165, 110. 
that's light enough for me where the limiter is probably not going to be with strength. And it's just going to be like, I'm going to be breathing hard throughout that workout. So I want to be able to move my ribs and be able to expand my diaphragm fully in a workout like that and be able to get more air um, and exchange air easier when I don't have that bar actually loaded on my body. So I'll probably opt not to use a belt in that workout, even though the volume would be pretty high and, and intensity is pretty relative. However, in a workout like 19-2 or 16-2, it's got toes to bar, double unders, and ascending squat cleans. Volume was definitely moderate going on high, but the intensity of that climbed across those sets. So you were getting really tired, but you also had to brace really hard because it was getting to a higher percentage of your one rep max. In a workout like that, I think for a lot of people, it would be helpful to throw on a belt. So certain patterns in a battery style effort, it certainly can be helpful to throw on a belt, even if it's in a Metcon. So the way I like to think about it is if I'm already going to be holding my breath in that movement to execute it to the effectiveness that I need, then I'm probably going to opt to wear a belt during that time versus if I'm just going to hold my breath for just a fraction of the second and I don't really need to create a ton of pressure, I probably won't wear my belt. So if it's a 2K row into 15 squat cleans at 80%, yeah, I'm probably going to wear my belt for that and I'm just going to work to breathe as efficiently as I possibly can while that belt is staying relatively tight in between those individual reps at the heavy barbell. So as you can tell, I don't really have a blind prescription to give just sort of across the board where like, hey, if it's this percentage, put on a belt. And if it's this movement, put on a belt. But I think a good rule of thumb is if you feel like you have to wear a belt in certain workouts, that's probably not great. And if you never wear a belt because you don't feel like it's effective or useful, you're probably not using it correctly. And that would likely be a good place to start moving forward. Hey, it's Ben again. And I want to take a minute to talk about our online training program, The Protocol. The Protocol is for athletes who want to train for the sport of fitness. It's programmed by me and it's my best attempt at preparing athletes with varying strengths and weaknesses for the demands of the sport. And I do this through the use of silos, which basically means I segment parts of the program based upon athletes' ability in a particular area. So for example, an element of the program this fall on Tuesdays and Thursdays was gymnastics-focused training. And there are four different silos, so athletes could choose to work on chest bars or muscle-ups or handstand push-ups or handstand walks. In other words, we are all doing the same core program, but there are ways to individualize it on a weekly basis. And as part of the program, I also include coaches' notes, technique videos, and educational resources almost daily. My goal is to not just have this feel like you're doing a workout plan, but to feel like I'm actually coaching you through the process of becoming the best athlete you can be. And having access to the protocol is just part of the benefit of being a pro member. You also get instant access to the vault which is exactly like it sounds. It means that you unlock the ability to be able to download all the programs that I've ever written. So this includes things like Bulletproof Body, which is the accessory work for functional fitness, gymnastics density for the big five, functional thickness, your first muscle up, cyclical supremacy, overhead squat mobility, breath work for the support of fitness, and it could go on and on. And lastly, you get instant access to pro articles, which are on topics that I really want to safeguard from the public and keep for my athletes. Stuff like cycle speeds for CrossFit open movements, strength ratio data analysis, so basically determining your relative weaknesses on strength work, breaking down sanctionals programming or games programming, energy systems testing and analysis, and a whole lot more. 
And if this sounds like stuff that you're into, you can get a seven-day free trial of Pro. Simply head over to zorfitness.com slash pro. Thanks for listening. And as always, stay the course.